Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of That Girl with the Curls. Uh, this is Sam, that girl with said curls. And uh, today's episode is uh, is a fun one. It's uh, an informative one, definitely. Um, this is episode 59 with Steve Sunu, who uh, I've... We kind of get into this in the beginning of the episode. I've, I've only really known for like a year... Uh, which, but it feels like it's been longer, and, and that's in a good way. Uh, very fast friends, I guess, uh, on the Comic Con circuit, just because um, I worked as press for Emerald City Comic Con, and he was at the time PR representative for Dark Horse Comics. He helped me get in touch with uh, several creators uh, during the course of the show and even afterwards. So uh, yeah, I I don't know why it took me so long to get Steve on, but uh, he's he's. Great. He's just fantastic. And uh, in this episode, Steve is uh, primarily uh, on the show to talk about uh, his his um, his work with uh, Stila, the new digital platform for reading comics. Uh, so we talk about that a little bit towards the end, but uh, throughout the uh, episode, we really get into kind of the the nitty gritty of the comic book industry. It's certainly where sales are uh, concerned, which is something that. Um, I don't feel a, a lot of people know about. I mean, and to some degree, why would you? I mean, so uh, it's really interesting. Steve has a lot of experience in this area, and he's been on, involved on both sides, uh, not just on the retail side, but also as a, uh, a writer, a distributor, uh, HR, uh, not, not HR, sorry, PR. <laughs> you know, he was in human resources as well, probably. I just... Let's just make that assumption. But uh, anyway, uh, I just, uh, you know, Steve is a really great person to talk to. He's so informative about the industry. And so I think that a lot of people are going to get something out of this episode. Um, and yeah, so uh, sit back, enjoy yourself, and uh, listen to me and Steve talk about some comics and uh, about uh, digital platforms. Uh, and then please do come back and, and listen to some more. Nothing much. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing really well. It's been a while. I know, right? It's almost... What, I saw you in Portland, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, last, last year in Rose City, right? You were yeah. in Rose City. Yeah. yeah, I was wandering around there. It's like, oh my god, it's Steve! <laughs> I am I am there some of the time. It's true. Just in Portland in general or at Rose City? Uh, both. I live in Portland. Actually. Oh, there we go. That makes it much easier for you. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, I'm going to walk over here. That seems reasonable. <laughs> yes. That's how I am with Emerald City. Like, my where I currently work is only a couple blocks away from the convention center. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. So it's it's great where I'm just like, I'm just going to get off work a little early, walk up to the convention center. Great. <laughs> I actually just got my pro badge for uh, Emerald City today, actually. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward to that. Yeah, I got my tickets in the mail today. So nice. The, Excellent. Uh, three days I'll be attending because uh, all the f- all the four-day ones sold out and 
I was like, I guess that's what happens when Reed Pop takes over a show. Yeah. I guess. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that they're expanding it to four days. I don't know if that'll mean attendance is down all that much more, or or, or spaces it out any. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, to attend the show this year. It's mm-hmm. this, this is their first year with Reed Pop, I think, right? I think this is the first with Reed Pop actually like being more involved. I think they were they had been bought last year. Right, but it was, like, announced, what, like, two weeks beforehand? Yeah, yeah, so this will be the first one, yeah, where Reed Pop has, like, all of its hands in the cookie jars. I'll be very interested to see how it goes. Yeah? Like, since they denied me press, I don't have to feel obligated to write about it, but I might do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Just walk around and be like, so, Reed Pop, eh? Check. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that, I don't know. I'm not that vindictive. (laughs) Um, do you have, uh, everything you need? Do you need a, like, a drink before we start, or? No, I should be pretty good, actually. I'm used to, I'm used to talking a lot for these things, so I don't, I don't have a water by me, but I probably don't need one. I'm probably fine. Okay, just let me know if you need to, like, go get a water, just in case you get a bit parched. <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll let you know. You're like, Sam, Sam, I really... Oh, God, I'm... everything is terrible. I'm like, don't I... interrupt the podcast, Steve! <laughs> <laughs> I need to make better decisions in my life. <laughs> like, why? This was a poor decision. <laughs> like I regret something. <laughs> it's one of my favorite jokes. Is always the uh, I regret nothing joke. If someone like falls off a cliff or something. I regret nothing. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> they're they're so like they're such simple jokes that just make me smile so much. Like um like a fire at will joke, uh, and someone just fires at a guy named Will. <laughs> so, <sorry. laughs> I don't know why. There was a meme that went around for a while where it was like Picard saying, fire at will, and there's just this look on Riker's face like, what? (laughs) I was just losing it. I've seen that one, actually. There we go. Yeah, it's hilarious. (laughs) Are there any like little jokes like that that just get you every time, no matter what? Uh... The, the one thing on the internet that never fails to make me laugh is the Melodica cover of the Jurassic Park theme on YouTube. <laughs> Melodica. <laughs> Just gets it's, you in that, that sweet spot. It's incredible. Like, every time I... I the, the description is funny. The way the cover is funny. The way the cover is built up is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like, every time I just... I, it, I lose it. Uh, it's really funny. It's that special video you go to, like, I'm having a crap day. I'm going to listen to the Melodica version yeah. of Jurassic Park. Right? It's like a, it's like a ten second video, but it's it's super funny. Well, yeah, I, I always, uh, my mom always is kind of like, look, you're having a bad day. Go find something funny to watch, and maybe it'll make you feel better. <laughs> I'm like, no guarantees, but uh, it could. <laughs> But uh, uh, Steve Suno, welcome to That Girl with the Curls. We're just going to get right into the introduction here. Uh, welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, it, I don't know why I didn't invite you sooner. Like, this feels like it should have happened a lot sooner than now, but I'm happy you're here anyway. Uh, well, I'm happy, like I said, I'm happy to be here, and uh, I was very flattered when you asked me to come on, because I know, I know you've had a lot of really great guests on the show in the history of the podcast, so yes. uh, very happy to be considered among them. Yay! Well, you know, everybody's special to me. Some are more special than others, but <laughs> <laughs> you're one of the special ones. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that, Sam. Well, and, and really, because uh, uh, I met you two years ago, I think, at Emerald City, right? I want to say was like it two years. I almost think it was actually one year ago. I was think it I, one year? 
Yeah, I think it was last year. Oh, that, man. It seems like a lot longer. It's Yeah, and, and that's not in a bad way or anything. It just feels like I've known you for a bit longer than maybe I really do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was uh, pressed for Emerald City, and uh, I got in contact with you because Dark Horse was uh, – did you guys, like – you would get lists of people uh, to, to reach out to? Is that how that worked? Yeah, I, I believe at the time we had, uh, you know, Emerald City as a hazard had a press list that we had access to, and, mm-hmm. uh, and we just sent kind of our, our schedule out to, to press, and anybody who wanted to cover could contact us and make an appointment, and you did. Yeah. So that was good. I got to, uh, uh, through you guys, I got to interview Gail Simone for uh, uh, now leaving Megalopolis. Um was it, was it Megalopolis or was it... No, it was Conan and Sonia. That's what it was. Uh, Conan and Red Sonia as well as Jim Zub for Conan and Red Sonia. And, uh, and then we tried to have an interview uh, with me and uh, Tyler Jenkins and Kelly Fitzpatrick uh, for Neverboy. But my phone crapped out of me, which has become a, a long and storied tale every time <laughs> I try to... That's right. I remember that, actually. I remember, I remember you having to redo it. Uh, that that one killed me because at that point I wasn't as good at doing like live interviews. Um, I just assumed technology would work for me. Uh, it did not. <laughs> so, it hurts when technology fails us. It really does. It, yeah, it's like you, you. It's that moment when you realize that so much of your life revolves around technology. <laughs> You're like, if this goes away, I am so fucked. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I can go back to the colonial days. I don't think I would survive in that environment. <laughs> like, um, but no, what I what I really remember from it is you and uh, Ob uh, were my go-to guys, and uh, you guys were just the sweetest people, like very accommodating and just really nice about trying to make everything happen, even if there were like technical difficulties or anything like that. Well, that's that's our job. I mean, I guess for people who listen to your podcast who don't know what I do, I'm I'm in PR, and, yeah, uh, and I, w- I was working for Dark Horse at the time. In case you hadn't gleaned that, uh, and. And yeah, that's kind of our job as PR people, just to make sure that the experience is as smooth as possible for journalists and for uh, people like yourself that want to cover our books. Mm-hmm. I think maybe just for someone like me who wasn't as used to the uh, press experience, like that was really only like my my second year, I think, doing press, and the first one where I actually had people like, oh, hey, we have a schedule for you. Would you, would you like to interview these people? So for me, it was just like, man, these guys are nice. <laughs> So I just got easily, you know, I'm easily uh, um, uh, impressed, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I actually used to be a, uh, a comics journalist. I worked for Comic Book Resources for uh, about five years, two years as a staff writer, and then three years as an editor slash reviews editor slash staff writer. I mm-hmm. wore a lot of hats. Uh, but when I when I started working in PR, I just wanted to, I thought about all the things that PR people have done for me that made my job easier, that made it uh, more of a pleasure to do my job rather than, you know, a much harder to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I got into PR, I just basically decided I was going to do all of those things. And if there was anything I could think of that could make it easier, I would do that too. So well, you accomplished that and you're a gentleman and a scholar. So. Oh, well, thanks, Sam. <laughs> uh, well, and let's so let's go back to uh, CBR then because uh, I I did not know that so this is a n- new territory. Um, what what is it actually like writing for a website like CBR that has um, a, a pretty decently sized fan base? Actually, well, I mean the the thing about being an enter- entertainment journalist, and I'm sure that you've run into this too, is that uh, most people are interested in the content; they're not really interested in the byline. So mm-hmm. when you're talking about writing for a site like CBR. 
Uh, yeah, the pedigree is definitely there for the, for the resume, and everybody there works really, really hard. I mean, it's one of the biggest comics websites on the internet for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody there is very hardworking. Jonah Weiland, the executive producer and my boss for five years, uh, really knows what he's doing. He really knows his stuff. He loves comics, and he wants to make sure that everything that goes up on the site is of a certain quality. Mm-hmm. And when you approach it with that attitude, you really, uh, you really get a product that reflects that approach. Mm-hmm. So I, when I when I worked for CBR as a staff writer, I was a part of a major core of freelancers that CBR employs. I don't know what the actual count is now, but it's it's quite a few freelancers that they employ. Whether that's for convention coverage, uh, feature articles, opinion pieces, uh, reviews, it's all a lot of it is freelance based. Mm-hmm. And then you have a core uh, core staff of editors that numbers between. I want to say like five to ten, somewhere around there is is the staff. So it's actually a pretty small in-house staff that helps uh, run the entire site. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky to be on both sides of it during my career there, and uh, and honestly, it was just very very uh, rewarding to get to cover this medium that I loved and to get to talk to a lot of people that uh, that have, that have become friends of mine over the years and to give. Uh, to give a higher profile to projects that may not have received it otherwise. Mm-hmm. So uh, just the ability to you know, work in comics and the ability to make a living doing that was just immensely rewarding. And I'm sure uh, I know a lot of the other folks that have been on your podcast that are in comics have said very much the same thing. And it's true. It's very rewarding to get to be a part of an industry that you sort of dreamed of as a kid. It may not necessarily be in the way that you thought you would be a part of it, mm-hmm. but you're still a part of it and you still get immense satisfaction out of coming into work every day, uh, you know, getting to getting to do your do a job that you love and to write about things that you that you love. So that was that was really the best part of it for me was just getting to be excited to wake up and go into work every day. No, that's really cool. That's that people, yeah, only dream about having that sometimes in their life where it's just like, I just need that one thing that's going to make me happy, just getting up every morning and excited to go to work. And who cares if there's traffic? I get to go and write about comic books when I get in. So, um, when, And with CBR, were, did you have a regular column or was it just, you know, here's a book, review it, here's a convention, go to it and cover it? Uh, it was a little from column A, a little from column B. I didn't really have a column. Uh, to, so to speak, mm-hmm. but a lot of what I did, I was the reviews editor, so I made sure that all the trains ran on time for reviews. I managed a staff of uh, excellent reviewers, wonderful review staff, many of whom are still there today. Uh, I would basically do breaking news stories. I would do features. So really, it was whatever needed to get done at the time. I would just make sure that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I, I think by the time I left CBR after five years, I had something like, uh, I don't know the exact count off the top of my head, but it was definitely over 2,000 bylines oh, wow. in CBR uh, in five years. So, uh, you know, it was it was really cool to, to get to be a part of that and to get to, uh, to, to, get to have been there for all of these wonderful... Uh, milestones that happened in those five years in comics. You mm-hmm. know, that was uh, Saga premiered during that time. Oh, uh, yeah. Valiant, uh, Valiant started up. They they debuted their new line during that time that I was there. I got a chance to cover that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to Leonard Nimoy on a press conference call. Oh my god, what was uh, that like? 
he, he was very gracious and really amazing. He was with a bunch of other uh, reporters, but I was lucky enough to actually be able to get a question in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got to speak to a number of different people involved in comics, involved in comics entertainment, involved in genre entertainment, and uh, you you don't really get an opportunity like that all the time. So I was just very happy that I got the chance to be a part of the industry and get a chance to have some of these experiences that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your time there, were uh, there any particular books that you you were like, I, I want to review that like every time it comes out or, you know, with you mentioning Leonard Nimoy, were there, were there interviews that you were just really proud that you, you got to uh, accomplish or, or be a part of at least? Yeah, I mean, some of them definitely. Uh, I was always just happy to cover any project where the creators or people involved seemed like they were really passionate about it. So, uh, you know, a lot of creator-owned stuff, uh, I was just very happy to talk to them and try to communicate that passion onto the page. Uh, you know, I, I actually got one of the, I think it was five advanced copies of Afterlife with Archie number one. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I, so CBRs was one of the first reviews of that book online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's one of the, I want to say, like three reviews that I wrote while I was working for CBR. And it was it was absolutely worth it to be able to to do that. And it was great because I think it was Stephen Scott, who now works for IDW, was the publicist for Archie at the time. And uh, it was just very flattering that he, he felt like he could send it to me and know that I would I would do a good job on a review. So that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I got uh, I got a chance to interview Kevin Conroy and Troy Baker on camera uh, at New York uh, at San Diego Comic Con a couple of years ago. Oh, that sounds so awesome! It was really great, and Kevin Conroy is every every inch the uh, the wonderful person that you think he would you, you would be from interviews. He was very very friendly, very gracious, mm-hmm. um, and he told a wonderful story about uh, how he actually worked because he's he's a native New Yorker. How he worked. Uh, to help cook in a in a kitchen for relief effort for nine eleven, mm-hmm. uh, and if anybody has a chance to sort of go go watch any any of those interviews with him, I think he tells the story again in uh, in the Netflix documentary. I know that voice, uh, but it's definitely worth wa- watching him tell that story because it's it's just amazing. It's a yeah, it's a beautiful story. He also I, I remember him actually telling that. Um, have you have you seen the Gotham Knight uh, anime? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He he's on the the commentary with Denny O'Neill and one of the producers, and I think he 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 tells another ver- a version of that story as well. Um, I just remember that just because listening to him d- say that, and then Denny O'Neill being able to comment on it and be like, "Oh my god, this is great." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was experiences like that. You know, I, uh, I I just feel very lucky to have had the career that I've had so far. I mean, I I got a job at Wizard Magazine right out of college I was very lucky to get one uh and through that I've just managed to meet a lot of really wonderful people in the industry that have really uh helped me out and given me a step up as I've continued on and you know Mm -hmm. I I worked at Dark Horse in PR last uh over the last year and uh now I'm involved with Stila the new uh the new comics for your phone app and working working there is a dream come true it's really wonderful uh I'm sure. I'm sure that you've seen a lot of the a lot of the press that's gone up, and mm-hmm. a lot of the early impressions, which are just really great. And uh, and I feel very lucky to be there. And and, and yeah, we're definitely going to get to Stila, uh, but we're gonna. I want to backtrack a little bit more. Then, uh, so you mentioned Wizard, but let's let's start with uh, what were the comics that you were really into that made you want to get into the industry? 
that's a that's a pretty loaded question. I mean, well, how, we've got time. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, I I've always really loved the medium ever since I was a kid. I mean, the the first exposure I ever had to comics was actually uh, I read a lot of the old Disney magazine Disney Adventures, which had mm-hmm. a ton of comics in there. Uh, Jeff Smith's Bone was actually serialized in there for a while. Uh, so, and there were a lot of Disney comics based on Disney Afternoon things, based mm-hmm. on Mickey and Friends. So, I got that magazine every month. It was one of the few things I was subscribed to. Uh, so, you know, new issues would come to my my door. Uh, before that, I would buy them at the grocery store with my own money. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's kind of, that was kind of my first exposure to an entertainment magazine that also had comics. I knew that comics existed, but I didn't realize, you know. Uh, what, what the Marvel Universe was, what the DC Universe was. I was yeah. aware of Batman. I was aware of Spider-Man, aware of Superman, the same way that all kids of my generation were. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I actually got an action figure of Wolverine just because I thought it was cool. It was the old Toy Biz uh, brown and tan uh, action figure suit with the, with the extendable claws uh, from Toy Biz that was based off of Pride of the X-Men. Oh my god, I remember that show. <laughs> Pride of the X-Men, the, the you know, proof of concept X-Men cartoon that, mm-hmm. that everybody remembers, that the Konami arcade game was based off of. Yep. Uh, and then it wasn't until later that I saw Pride of the X-Men and I got really into the X-Men. Uh, so I, I started buying comics, much like many people in my generation did in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I started reading that stuff. My, my uncle was really nice uh, and sort of made knew, knew that I like comics. So whenever a holiday would roll around or my birthday would roll around, he would just send me a package of comics that he had gone to the comic store to get. And I would pore over those for, you know, weeks, just re-reading and rereading uh, stuff within, I, I think there was a, there was one that was like in the middle of, uh, oh, what was the event name? I can't remember the, the event name to, to, for the life of me. Yeah. But, uh, it was it was an Iron Man it was Iron Man number two seventy nine I remember that mm-hmm. uh, and it was during oh it was uh, Galactic Storm that was the third. <laughs> and it was like that issue was like part part like one billion of Galactic Storm it was that that's an exaggeration but it was certainly well into the event and I I read it and I could 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 immediately understand what was going on you know I didn't have all the backstory but that issue even though it was part of a greater storyline still drew me in and still made me want to read and. Uh, learn more, more more about these characters. So, was your uncle exclusively sending you Marvel stuff, or was he just grabbing anything and sending it to you? He was you? grabbing anything that I think he thought looked interesting. So there was also some DC stuff there, but I really got into the Marvel stuff. Just the uh, the artistic aesthetic, the uh, the the origins of the of the characters and the relatability of the characters really spoke to me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I fell off comics for a while. I got back into it when I heard that they were doing. This, uh, this book called Exiles. Marvel was doing a book called Exiles. Mm-hmm. And that, to this day, is probably my favorite single run on comics of all time. Okay. Uh, it started out with Judd Winnick and Mike McCone, and it was just Blink from Age of Apocalypse and an alternate reality morph from Age of Apocalypse uh, on a team with just a bunch of like reimagined alternate Elseworlds X-Men mm-hmm. uh, jumping from reality to reality to try to fix something that had gone wrong in that timeline. Is that and, is that the moment where the, there's like a pastry incident or something like that? Uh, probably. Yeah. I wonder, uh, I wonder, 
I want to believe a friend of mine was trying to tell me about a book where it was a whole bunch of heroes that were thrown into these different like alternate timelines or whatever to fix things, you know, very much like what um, Legends of Tomorrow is kind of doing, only it's right. in the same right. timeline. But uh, like there was something involving like a pop tart, basically, like a, a pastry had to be consumed or taken away from this one person <laughs> or else the world ends or something like that. I think that might have been one of the vignettes at one point. Mm. I, I don't remember that. That exact that one exactly. It's been a while since I've read the run. Oh, okay. but I just remember that book sort of bringing me back into what Marvel was doing and what DC was doing, mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was when I was in high school, uh, middle school, high school. So uh, fell off of it again for a while, and then in college I picked it back up because uh, a bunch of friends would go on Wednesdays to just go to a local comic book store, and we would we would just grab comics, whatever was coming out that week that looked interesting, and then we would come back and read them and talk about them. Uh, so when it came time for me to try to figure out what I wanted to do after college, because I was a sociology major, and unless you want to go into a field that involves sociology, that's basically what you major in when you don't know what to do with your life. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was like English or communication degrees at this point. I mean, both of those two. I mean, communications actually actually pretty relevant in today's uh, today's society, but sociology, where I went to school, I went to school to, at uh, Wesleyan University out in Connecticut, oh, and nice. uh, there, sociology just kind of has courses in everything. It's got, you know, statistical analysis, it's got, uh, you know, some political courses, it's got some music and science courses, it's got a little bit of everything, so basically... I took sociology because I, w- I was interested in too many things, uh-huh. uh, and that was the major where I could just take a bunch of classes that had to do with a bunch of different things and be okay. Uh, so when it came time to figure out what it was that I wanted to do, I was lucky enough that an alumnus who was coming back to visit and give a talk had, uh, had worked for years at Wizard Magazine, both as a staffer and then he moved on to Toy Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was coming back to give a talk, so I was lucky enough to get a sit-down with him through our Career Resource Center and uh, and mention that I wanted to, like, work, write, uh, writing for a magazine like that was something that I'd be really interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I heard him give the talk before my drop-in with him, uh, I mentioned this, and he said, oh, do you have a resume? And I said, yeah. And he said, bring it during your drop-in tomorrow. I'll make sure it gets to the right people. Uh, so it was... He, he definitely didn't have to help me out like that, but he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, that moment just kind of got me into the comics industry, and I would not be where I am today without that particular step up. So, was uh, Had you always had like aspirations to write, like write comics or write about comics? Like, um, I mean, you're, you're there for sociology, basically. Or that's what you've declared as your major. Uh, but were you already like writing for like the college newsletter or something like that? Hilariously, no. Uh, <laughs> I I had never really considered a career in writing. I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. I'd always wanted to be uh, in marketing, but those internships and those early positions were very, very difficult to get out of college. So mm-hmm. I had to try to figure out what else it was that I could do with my skill set. And when you're in college, you write a lot of papers. It's not oh, necessarily yeah. uh, the right kind of writing, but you do get a pretty significant background mm-hmm. in writing when you're an undergrad. So that was a skill set that I had and something that I kind of wanted to put to good use in, in a way that would be fun and in a field that I'd be, I, I would be very interested in. So that was, that was an opportunity that I jumped at. It also, I was also kind of looking for whatever I could get at that point 
because that was I graduated in 2008 right during the big economic downturn oh, yeah. so any any job at that point that wasn't working retail I was perfectly happy to do <laughs> no I, I feel that it was a great job like don't get me wrong but I would have been very happy to get pretty much anything mm-hmm. uh, and and your experience with writing uh, I can attest to this because uh, I, um, I was a history major in, in uh, my undergrad and grad school uh, so when I started writing stuff for my my blog with a uh, prior to Maniacal Geek or whatever, when I was writing for Word of the Nerd and just in my own free time, it was those skills I learned in writing history papers, which are su- you know supremely uh, analytical and everything. So it's you know you start seeing those same things and those skills just start coming out because you had that conditioning basically. Um, so I understand that ability to write based on uh, college papers at this point. <laughs> Sure, and, and it, writing writing college papers every week definitely gives you the basic skills that you need, but uh, once you get into a job where you're forced to write, you have to improve very, very quickly, and you mm-hmm. do, because you're doing it every day. You are writing every single day, and uh, by the time I was done at Wizard and I started working for CBR, I looked back at some of my older stuff, and I was shocked at how bad it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, just shocked at how terrible it was compared to, compared to how it was when I started writing for CBR. So it's been uh, – that that was a really great experience and learning on the job is not something that a lot of people have the opportunity to do these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that I was able to, to do that and I was actually able to get that experience running on the job was really, really – rewarding and really great i wouldn't trade it for anything definitely uh do you do you feel like you had a particular voice when you were writing or was it were you trying to stay uniform with i guess the the wizard brand or did they let you like have that freedom to kind of i don't know like find a a way that's uniquely you to write honestly it really depended uh they were they were pretty lax in terms of letting me letting me have a voice and i tried i tried my best there to have a voice but honestly i wasn't there long enough really Mm -hmm to establish any sort of voice. When I was at CBR, I did. Um, you know, I had... it, But you know this as well as I do, that uh, occasionally you're going to run into a lot, a long string of pieces where you're basically saying the same thing. Mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> um, just for different projects. So, uh, not, to, not to knock freelancing or not to knock any of the articles that people do. I've, I've written mm-hmm. those articles and they're, they're great. But also... Uh, you, you kind of have to keep in mind that sometimes you are going to have to be a little bit repetitive and you are you are going to have to try to inject your voice as much as you can, but with the awareness that there's only so much of that that you can do. Oh, definitely. Yeah, uh, I found when I was doing reviews for Word of the Nerd that when, I, you because know, I had no problem like analyzing the, the themes or the dialogue or anything like that. When it came to the art, it got to a point with certain books that I had been reviewing like for a long time. It was like, how many other ways can I say it's great and I like it? <laughs> like, uh, after a while, you just run out of uh, words in the thesaurus that you haven't used. Right, exactly. Yes, 100%. I, I kept a thesaurus right by my desk just so that I could I could look that stuff up. You're like, have I used that one yet? Do you have, like, check marks next to each word? You're like, nope, did that already. <laughs> um, so, with, uh, so with Wizards, uh, I mean, how long were you at Wizards? I was with Wizard for uh, eight months before they laid off their entire in-house writing staff. Oh, there you go. And uh, how long were you uh, without a job before you got into CBR? 
Uh, the great thing about working at Wizard is at the time it still meant something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Wizard was a was a huge driving force in comics critis- uh, criticism and critique. Mm-hmm. It was at least in the mainstream. It uh, determined a lot of. Uh, it, it broke a lot of news in its day, so uh, the name definitely still meant something while I was there. Uh, so luckily I'd been able to make a lot of contacts, and pick, I was able to pick up a lot of freelance work after that, uh, Some of, with some with CBR, some freelance uh, PR copywriting stuff. Uh, but for the most part, I was able to go to freelance almost immediately after I left uh left wizard mm-hmm. uh it was it was an uphill climb certainly because i hadn't had time to build up as many contacts as the other people in my office had and we were all kind of looking for the same things mm-hmm. so uh i did end up having to supplement freelance with uh retail jobs for a while after i moved from new york to boston i worked for the flagship border store in boston part-time uh and that was a, a fun experience, I guess. I'm gonna go ahead and say, <laughs> I love that there's a question mark in your voice. Like, I'll, ah. go ahead, I'll go ahead and say fun because I don't really know how else to describe it. I mean, if you've ever worked retail, you know that uh, there there are a lot of people that work retail that are way, way too good for the job. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've always said that if the world the world would be a much more respectful, better place if every single person on earth had to work retail for for one month if they were forced to work retail for one month and have to deal with the same things that retail salespeople have to do on a daily basis mm-hmm. they would be so much nicer to everybody i swear it's yeah it would be kind of like the the two years of mandatory service in the israeli army kind of thing where right like, exactly like everybody's you, required once you have that but uh, uh eventually i was able to uh get a full-time job editing for CBR, and it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my entire life. I did that job for three years. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd been writing for them for two, two before that, and I, I wrote for them, for, I, I edited for them for three years, and it was easily one of the most rewarding and wonderful experiences of my professional career. So was that, was doing the editing, and uh, I mean, you, you mentioned you did some PR and marketing, uh, is that just what led you to kind of go into the, the more strictly PR department when you moved on to Dark Horse? I had really always been interested in doing PR, uh, but I wasn't quite sure how one, what the career path was for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more I lo- I tried to find entry level jobs in PR and, or try to find a pathway, the more I realized that the best thing that I could do was continue doing what I was doing, do a good job, continue to uh, keep open channels of communi- communication with the PR people that I did know. And if the opportunity came up, just be ready to jump on it. So mm-hmm. that's basically uh, how I ended up getting getting my foot in the door. Just you know, making sure that I did the best job I could, making sure to keep up those connections, and making sure to uh, to just do my job as well as I possibly could. And and what uh, I mean with your your daily you know job at Dark Horse, what what is the life of a, a PR person you know you know contain basically? Well, you know, that depends. Uh, most of the time, it is it is a lot of follow-through. It's a lot of not being afraid to reach out to people that you don't know to cover something that you think they might potentially maybe care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my job is a lot of answering and sending emails. Uh, <laughs> right now. It's a lot of jumping on the phone if I have to and talking to reporters. It's a lot of uh, 
making sure I communicate with creators about their book and making sure that I understand the book. It's a lot of reading scripts. It's a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a lot of formulating plans to make sure that uh, things are covered in the in the right way with the right angle. Uh, it's liaising with creators, individual PR people that they have they've hired to make sure that their PR is going well uh, and coordinating with them. It's it's a lot of communication. Seems like there's never a dull moment as well. <laughs> I mean, I I would like to think that every everything in PR is exciting, but the truth of the matter is there's, uh, even though there's not a lot of downtime, not everything is terribly exciting. I think probably the most exciting parts are when the articles that you've lined up and helped coordinate actually get published online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when people have a good reaction to, to the article and by extension the, the project or the product, uh, it's very rewarding to see press that you've lined up drop and have it actually get any reaction. Because honestly, any reaction at this point, uh, with the massive amount of news that comes out every day, mm-hmm. uh, is is kind of a win. <laughs> well, and and that's the thing too, because you you you're you've been at these interesting moments in the comic book industry as well. I mean. Um, not just with uh, Steel, and now when we're we're getting more into the digital platform distribution of comics as a more ubiquitous you know thing, but even before that, with uh, these changes in comics journalism that have been happening over the last you know five years or so, I mean really, uh, you know, uh, what has it been like for you to kind of see those those changes happening over time? There have been so many changes that I'm actually going to need you to be more specific. So. Oh, well, um, I'm just in terms of like, because with comic book journalism now, uh, I mean, there's always been this question of clickbait uh, or not very much a question, but it's always this issue of clickbait and um, working for CBR, which, you know, has a, a large staff of people and you're always trying to make sure that the news is, you know, informative, but you also want it to appeal to people. Uh, I mean, did you see uh, CBR kind of, you know, taking a stance on that? Or was there just kind of like whatever it takes to get people onto the website? I think that CBR is in a unique position in being one of the most respected uh, sites in the industry. It's certainly one of the most respected news news sources in the comics industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a result, when when I was there, and certainly the staff there now, I, I know feels this as well, I felt like I had a responsibility uh, to make sure that whatever was getting put out there was of as high a quality as I could make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that means a list of things that relate to, to current news that many people have called clickbait in the past, and certainly I've called it that, uh, or, or it was a big long lead feature piece, or it was analysis on TV ratings numbers for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, you know, whether it was a, a panel report all my my primary goal was always to make sure that whatever was put out was my best work and something that i could be proud of Mm -hmm. i i can't speak to other outlets about about that and i can't speak to other reporters about Mm -hmm. that but i can tell you that while i was at cbr i was very consistently proud of i would say like 90 5% 5% of the work that I did. I, I can't be proud of all of it. <laughs> uh, but whether it was a breaking news story, just making sure to provide the proper context, making sure to attribute our source, making sure to uh, to give proper credit where credit was due. Uh, if it was a 
an interview, making sure to ask interesting questions, making sure to do my research, to go in fully informed, mm-hmm. to uh, to make sure that my interview subject was engaged while I was speaking with them or while I was emailing with them. Uh, you know, just generally making, doing my due diligence to make sure that whatever the end product was, it was something that I could be proud of, that my outlet could be proud of running, or at least, or at least borderline not ashamed of running. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, and and something that was well thought out and well considered. And mm-hmm. I think that if all entertainment journalists take those steps, that the amount of clickbait that you see, or at least stuff that even if it is clickbait, once you get in, it's a it's a rewarding thing to read. Mm-hmm. I think that the amount of actual clickbait pieces goes down exponentially, but you probably still get the hits that you need. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there, there certainly is a trend for, for getting hits onto websites and for, especially for ad based revenues mm-hmm. where, where clicks are king. Yeah. There was always I, this, uh, this issue of, I mean, when, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not shy about like what happened when I worked at word of the nerd and everything. And I say worked in the sense that they didn't pay me obviously, but, uh, the, this idea of, um, a quantity over quality at times, uh, because what you're talking about is integrity. You know, you want to be proud of what you put out because those are your words, your voice, you know, in, in whatever way, shape or form they are. And so there were, there were times in in terms of my writing career, you know, with, uh, with other websites where it's just like, I, I always felt proud of my product but then when you're surrounded also by other things that are clearly, you know, I'm not trying to say that I was a better writer than everybody, but I'm what mostly what I'm getting at is that it just felt like the time wasn't put in that should have. Right. And certainly I was in a very unique position in mm-hmm. the industry. Not only was I working at CBR, but I was an editor on the site. So I did get to see most of the things that were, well, not most, I got to see a lot of the things that were going through Mm -hmm. um, and that were submitted to us for publication. So I was sort of the last line of defense in for a lot of those things uh, in terms of typos, in terms of uh, in terms of grammatical errors, in terms of sentence structure, like Mm -hmm. that, that was part of my job. So it was doubly important to me, at least to make sure that, that we had, we had integrity, that all of our writers were proud of what it was that they were turning in. So, uh, I, I realized that I was in a position to be able to try to care about everything that I wrote about, but I also understand that not all freelancers are in that position. Yeah. Um, especially if you're not being paid. Uh, if you're, and that that's something that I, I have very strong opinions about. I think that if a site is going to operate as a for-profit site, they should be paying their writers. It doesn't matter if it's if it's a lot of money, but they have to pay them something. Like, here, uh, here, I'm, I'm going to subscribe to your magazine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you have to pay your writers, right? It, yeah. It, it, there's, I, I went on a Twitter rant about this a few years back. I think it was when uh, there was a site that had said that they, they only do volunteer writers, but their site was making money, and they, they called themselves a nonprofit, uh, <laughs> which is not what that means. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not for profit is different than a nonprofit. Uh, so... At, at the time, one of the things I, I said and something that I still believe is that if you're, if you're good at something, don't ever agree to do it for free. Mm-hmm. Don't ever agree to do it just for exposure. Um, 
if you're if you're good at something and you submit a piece to an editor or, or you submit a or, or you apply to work at a at a website or at a at a magazine and they they like your submission they have to like it enough to pay you yeah uh, if you're good at it, if you're good at something, especially writing, don't ever do it for free because uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners also know there are a lot of sites out there that don't have good writers, mm-hmm. and it's clear that they're not being paid for their work. And even even if it's just the gesture of saying, "Look, we're we're on a shoestring operating budget, we're we're definitely in the red, but we want to make sure that you get paid something for your work. It doesn't have to be a lot, but mm-hmm. make it make it worth the time that they put into." Yeah, I mean, I yeah, when I was when I wrote, I I could never just, you know, not write something that I wasn't proud of. Like I never could take the route of, well, I'm just going to be lazy about it and write this really shitty review or whatever because, you know, you take pride in in the product that you put out. But then it's like I'm putting all of this time and effort into something that um really all I'm supposedly getting is exposure, but I'm not even really getting that because if it's a small website, you know, trying to to make that um, impression is is hard when you have so many sites out there doing the exact same thing. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, it just becomes this very it's it's this relationship not only with the website you're writing for, but with the people who own it or are ostensibly your your bosses or something like that. You know, and you just you just trying to basically demand that you be um, that your voice be worth something. Exactly, and certainly. Uh, this is this is something that's run rampant in entertainment journalism for for years. Mm-hmm. It's just more exacerbated now with the internet. Uh, but know that there is a difference between writing your own blog and building up yourself as a brand and continuing to hone your writing skill on your own time, mm-hmm. and and being asked to write something for somebody else's benefit. Yeah, uh, and that's that's really the distinction for me is that if I'm going to write something that is going to potentially add traffic to your website and make you money, you should be paying me. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I do that anymore because I don't freelance anymore. But, yeah. uh, but I, I do believe that very strongly writers should respect themselves enough to want to get paid for their work. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think is the, the biggest thing that I would that, that has both affected me and I would like to see changed moving forward in, in journalism, uh, especially entertainment and comic book journalism, because so many people do it for free, and I just, I can never recommend that to them. Yeah. Uh, I was on a panel at, uh, at Rose City, actually, last year. Mm. Uh, it was James Lucas Jones from Oni had put, uh, had put together a panel, I think it was called Breaking into Comics Sideways, uh, <laughs> and it was me, uh, Jay... Rachel Edidin, mm-hmm. uh, Robin Herrera from Oni, and Lauren Sankovich, who uh, who's an editor for uh, for Matt Fraction and Kelly Sudi Comics comics. Oh, okay, yeah. And one of the things that Jay mentioned was that comics is one of the few industries, and certainly this is true of other entertainment industries as well, where just working in it is considered to be a currency. Mm-hmm. Uh which you don't really get in any industry that's not entertainment. So because you're working in comics, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain prevailing attitude that that in and of itself has value. Yeah. And as long as you are working in comics, 
you should just be happy with the fact that you're working in comics and not worry about any other value that could potentially be added to it. Yeah, not like needing to pay rent or something. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that really stuck with me because it's a really good way of putting it, I think. It's a really good way of, of noting that a lot of people in comics aren't actually paid that well. Uh, they, they work in comics because they love the medium, because they're good at it, and because they they really, really want to be a part of this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, it's definitely something where, uh, because the understanding of how the internet works is still in this, uh, I, I think we're, we're still feeling out what the internet really is for us at this point, uh, just because we, we assume things are free because it's on the internet. And so some people take that philosophy and apply it to labor now, um, which is, is not a good idea. <laughs> No, 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 no. And certainly there are ways to make money on things that are on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are major sites that have been operating for years that make money off the internet. Yeah. Uh, it's just a question of finding reasonable and ethical ways to do that while still making sure that you're compensating whatever labor you've hired uh, accordingly. I mean, it's it's just it's just fair labor and fair pay. I mean, that's it's the basis of our country in a lot of ways. So, um, so where's the where, we need? It, there's a comic book union, isn't there? Or is are there? I, I always feel like there's a, a donation thing going around for uh, the comic book uh, code or union, something like that. There's a there's the comic book legal defense fund. There we which, go. Uh, which helps. Uh, you you guys can look them up online. CBLDF. Uh, they they provide legal assistance for uh, creators, but as far as I know, there's not really there's not really a union uh, of comics writers the same way that there's you know screen actors uh, screen actors guild or a, or a writers guild or anything like that. Well, then let it be known that here and now we started it today. So, <laughs> you and me, Steve, we're going to change the world. <laughs> um, but no, I mean it's. It's it's very interesting just the way things are are kind of rapidly changing now in these in these last few years. Just not only with like the the con seasons blowing up. I mean, San Diego I think has gotten so big that it's practically taking up most of San Diego at this point. Yeah, that started that that's definitely something that happened in the last five years mm-hmm. uh, where where some companies realized that it was cheaper to rent out a storefront for a week yep. than it was to attempt to get a table inside San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. Uh, and, and definitely even with uh, with Emerald City Comic-Con, which has been just been growing and growing and growing, and now with Reed Pop taking, you know, being a partnership of that, uh, it, it's interesting how, like, that's this one is now becoming maybe a, an, an alternative. I don't even know if it would be an alternative. It looks like it might be going the same route at this point. We'll see. I mean, this is, like you said, this is the first year that Reed Pop has actually had a real hand in, in running Emerald City, so it'll be very telling to see uh, what attendance is like, uh, what what ancillary events have been set up, whether or not there are any ancillary events. Mm-hmm. You know what what creator reaction is to it, what fan reaction is to it. It'll be a really interesting year for the show. Definitely, um, and and what is it like from your perspective when doing PR at, um, on the convention floor? Because you're you're active in that. I I mean, are a lot of PR people as active as maybe you are, or like uh, with you and Ob, how you how you were um, at at Emerald City. I'd say so. I mean, uh, it certainly depends on the company. It depends on what their strategy is for uh, for the show. But I've certainly seen other publishers 
be as active, if not more active, uh, than we were at Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. And uh, we cert- Dark Horse certainly took a uh, took a very aggressive line at making sure that we lined up press for all the creators that we had signing and made sure that we had a lot of creators there uh, signing at the booth. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get to just enjoy yourself on the floor when you were working PR? When you work in comics and you're working a show, nine times out of ten, you do not have time to enjoy yourself on the floor. Uh, this was true when I was a comics journalist, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was definitely true while I was at Dark Horse. And uh, and time will tell if uh, if it holds true at Stila. I actually think that it will be a little bit easier for me because we are a digital product and we're not uh, we're not exhibiting at any of these shows it will be a lot easier for me to walk around and make sure that I'm able to say hi to everybody and, uh, and you know, just, just generally be around and yeah. get to leave the floor whenever I want to actually, <laughs> you know, eat food, which would be nice. What? Eat real food? Oh, whatever. You don't need that. <laughs> but this is an excellent segue into uh, what you are currently doing now with, uh, with Stila. And um, so we have discussed that it's a digital platform, but for those who are not aware, um, can you give us a little like rundown of what Stila is? Absolutely. So uh, Stila is a free app that's currently available on the uh, Apple App Store for iOS. Uh, it's called Stila Comics for Your Phone, and that's really what we do. We do comics for your phone. Uh, it's 100% original content, most of it creator-owned, uh, so it's driven by creator-owned in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our goal is to be sort of the HBO Go or the Netflix originals of comics. Uh, we, we run off of a subscription model, so it's four ninety nine a month for about 160 pages wow. uh, a month. And that that's not phone pages, that's actual comics pages. We have a conversion rate where it's, I think, uh, four phone phone panels equals one actual comics page. Okay. So if you multiply that number by four, that's how many like phone phone com phone panel pages you're getting. Uh, we're we're launching we launched uh, last week to to really great fanfare. So far we've had a lot of really positive reactions to it. And our idea is that uh, so many people use their phones for everything. I mean, you, I know you as a journalist use your phone as a recorder. I've done that myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, people use their phones to, to download music, to download movies, to, uh, to read books, to put their boarding passes for flights on. Mm-hmm. Phones have literally become our go-to devices. You, won't, you don't see any adult without a smartphone really today. Yeah. Uh, there are millions of iPhone users out there. There are, there are millions of Android users out there. So the idea behind Stila is, well, if you're already doing so much on your phone, why wouldn't you want to have an app that gets you original comics content that keeps you coming back every day? So that's, that's what it is that we're doing. We have a chapter of an original series going up every single weekday. Mm-hmm. Um, and for uh, $4.99 a month, you get access to... Uh, whatever we published in the past as well as whatever we publish in the future. So uh, it's a really rewarding experience, especially since the way you read a Stila comic is the same as you would read something like Facebook or Twitter or, Twitter or Tumblr or Instagram. You, you just scroll down. Mm-hmm. It's an infinite, infinite scrolling uh, feature. And uh, so how did you get involved with Stila, actually? Uh, Jim Gibbons, who is the senior editor at Stila, 
I have worked on and off with Jim uh, for four consecutive jobs. Mm-hmm. I worked with him at Wizard. I worked with him briefly at CBR. I worked with him at Dark Horse, and now I'm working with him at Stila. So uh, Jim w- uh, actually was at Dark Horse for, I want to say, about five years, and then uh, Stila recruited him and had him come on board to help help uh, shape their creator online. Mm-hmm. And he actually was was uh, good enough to recommend me for the job of PR manager. So, uh, you know, we, we spoke, and it, it seemed like it was a really good fit. And because I, I believed so much in what it was that they were doing, I thought, uh, you know, I'm at a point in my life where it makes sense to try to start something that could not only benefit uh, digital comics and, and iPhone users, but also print comics just by getting more readers into the format. So... Uh, it was a really unique opportunity. I was really happy to to be a part of it, and I'm, I continue to be happy to be part of it today. Yeah, and 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 it's it's interesting because again, like the digital formatting for comics has has been an ongoing. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if I want to say issue, but it's been uh, it's been a topic of conversation for a long time, especially when uh, Comicsology came out and with their uh, guided views and the way we read comics has definitely changed. I mean, there's there's plenty of print out there, but there it's going down and more people are um, uh, more uh, prone to using their digital devices because it eliminates the middleman of going to a store or, you know, basically taking time out of your day to make this detour. Sure. And I think, uh, I think that the first step was to get existing comics onto digital, which mm-hmm. they've done. Uh, and it was a very, it was a, a crucial first step for sure. But what what they basically done is they've adapted uh, print comics to digital as opposed to innovating for a new platform, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what Steela is doing is actually innovating and trying to move, trying to move the medium forward in a way, mm-hmm. uh, so that it works for technology that you can uh, you can have people who are are growing up with smartphones who know how to use this technology intuitively uh, just know how to read a comic and and know how those story beats go and see how sequential storytelling can be done uh, but on on a smartphone instead of in paper yeah uh, it's it's a really really cool reading experience and like I said the app is free so if you're if you're listening and you're, you're interested please download the app and, and check it out all our first chapters are free mm-hmm. so uh, even if you don't subscribe, you have a chance to kind of see what it is that we're all about. And if you see something that you like and you want to support those creators, um, you know, definitely subscribe because we we have uh, we really want to support creator-owned material. Uh, all all of our our profits are profit shared through uh, through the creators whose content is up on the app. Mm-hmm. So uh, we really want to make sure that we're we're supporting new creator-owned material moving forward in a way that's sustainable and in a way that people can continue to read it even after it's gone off of comic shelves or after it's it's out of print in trade yeah um and we we really value our creators our creator owned deal is really really good i can't uh i can't divulge all all the details about it but suffice it to say that we are pretty much only interested in the digital rights Mm -hmm. and uh creators retain all other rights they retain print entertainment uh any other rights uh, stay with the creator. We, we only have digital rights. Well, Steve, I hate to tell you, but I have the contract right here, so we're going to go through it uh, page by page. Because <laughs> I'm that good online. 
but no, that that's fantastic. Um, that you're you're giving the the creators, you know, pretty much most of the rights to the to their content, which is you know fantastic. Right, and you know, I think I think Image has done a really good job paving the way for for people to realize that creator owned content is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we want to do is make sure that we continue to uh, to drive that point home and do it do it in a way that makes sense for us. Uh, you know, that makes sense for new readers to come on and enjoy a lot of these books. We've got some wonderful creators on board already. We have Evan Dorkin and Sarah Dyer doing a great Buffy meets uh, Cthulhu <laughs> sort of thing called Call of Cthulhu. It's fantastic. Uh, Jen and Tyler Bartell doing Crystal Fighters Chaos Arena, which is a magical girl fight club story. Yes! Um, we've got, we've got uh, Ron Wimberly doing a book called Gratinin, which stands for Gratuitous Ninja, which is like a concrete jungle uh, ninja story, and it's it takes advantage of the format so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've got we've got so many other titles on the way as well. We've got we announced uh, Breaker by Mariah McCourt and uh, Kelly and oh, I'm going to blank on the name. Uh, I'm going. To, I'm actually going to look this up because I feel bad blanking on the name. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. It's. Yeah, it's uh, Mariah McCord and Kelly and Nicole Matthews. Oh, okay. Uh, doing a book called Breaker, which is a uh, sort of a supernatural mystery with a uh, surfing werewolf. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So we, we basically have the freedom as a new publisher to really uh, do whatever it is that we think is cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're very lucky to have Jim on board and our, uh, our editor-in-chief, Ryan Yount, as well as uh, Roxy Polk, our associate editor, and our... Um, Marketing and Special Projects Director uh, Caleb Golner, who is also editing books, uh, we're very lucky to have them on board because they have really great taste and uh, and the reaction to our, our current lineup of titles and our previews have, have just been overwhelmingly positive and it's really, really emboldening to see the industry sort of uh, stand up and, and say that, yes, this is something that we're interested in. This is something that we want. This is a storytelling format that we can get behind. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and especially like with the variety of content as well. I mean, that's what I I do really love about you know publishers like Dark Horse and and Image and uh, and IDW and everything is that they they're not as afraid and, and or they're they're more willing to take risks on concepts. You know, uh, you know we wouldn't have books. You know, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick is one of my favorite writers, so we wouldn't have books like Pretty Deadly or Bitch Planet if someone wasn't willing to take a chance on the content. Um, so it's very exciting to hear that you know, surfing werewolves and you know, Buffy meets Cthulhu, like things that you know people uh, can only really imagine in their head than finding its way into the palm of their hand, basically. Yeah, and that's the best part. I mean, we we feel like we have a really unique opportunity with Stila to do do things that you wouldn't normally expect in comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the first of which is not having to deal with the direct market. Yeah. Uh, the, the direct market has has some good qualities about it, for sure, but I think for the most part, uh, it is an antiquated system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is, it is something that is perpetually frustrating for uh, customers and fans to have to deal with because, uh, because if the, the distribution channels are there, and that's great, but... Uh, you can't. You can no longer just walk into a bookstore or walk into a comic store and find basically any issue in the last 
in the last two months that's come out. Yeah. Uh, you know, retailers are being forced in these times to order almost exactly to the stuff that they can sell mm-hmm. and sometimes underorder that because any other copies they're on the hook for. And uh, and you really can't tell what's going to be like the big thing to order. So it's like they always they always kind of either go very conservative or unless they really think that those creators have like earned the hype that they'll just overdo it sometimes. Exactly. And, you know, you see a lot of press go up when previews comes out, when it uh, when previews comes out, a lot of press goes up uh, two months before you can even get the issue in a store. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there there are series that definitely merit the press coverage and that definitely merit the amount of of fan enthusiasm behind it, retail enthusiasm behind it. But when you have such a crowded marketplace, you're looking at uh, you know probably like 20 or 30 titles being announced a month now. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. Well, depending on which event crisis is happening and which uh, big two publisher, I suppose. Sure, but even even if you're not talking about the big two, even if you're talking about uh, the, the creator-owned driven stuff, the indie stuff, mm-hmm. you're looking at so many new number ones hitting shelves every month, and all of them are being promoted Two months in advance. Yeah. Sure, they get the release date push, but not in the same way, because by the time, I don't, I, and again, this is sort of a crash course in the direct market for your listeners that don't know a lot about this, but by the time the issue actually comes out, retailers have already bought it. The companies have made their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of that product is non-returnable, and, the, and, and product that is returnable will sometimes get a push, but for the most part, the, the first issues that you're seeing from, from companies like, uh, like Image like Dark Horse, like IDW, like Marvel, DC, all the companies across the board, most of those issues, the retailers have to have to eat the cost if they don't sell. Yeah. So if the book is is hyped up as being the next coming of Saga, and it's not, the retailers are on the hook for all of those unsold issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, and it re- is it like returnables in the way where you can actually get your money back, or is it returnables in the sense like, I'm selling my college books back and get like two cents for this? When, it, when a book is marked as returnable, they will get refunded for unsold copies. Okay. Yes. Um, so the, that system, I think, is, in, is broken in so many ways because you don't see that. I, I don't believe you see that in almost any other industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clothing, for sure, they'll, they'll eat the cost and they'll put it on the, on the bargain rack until somebody buys it or they'll donate it. But comics, comics take up a lot of space and they are irrelevant very quickly. Mm-hmm. Very, very quickly. Um, single issues, at least. Because by the time the trade comes out, you can forget about being able to sell those back issues. Yeah. Because why would anybody want to buy the back issues when they can buy the trade, which takes up less space, is less expensive. Um, so I think the print model at the moment, as it sits, there, there's something wrong with it. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, you, you look at books, even. And uh, I worked in books for a while. I worked the retail side of it. And books are returnable. Yeah. Books are returnable. Like there, there is no publishing model right now that operates with the same sort of broken system that the comics direct market does. Yeah, uh, and that's one of the reasons I think a model like Stila's is so strong. Because when when I when I go to promote a book now, uh, unless there's a really good reason to, I don't promote it until the week it's it's out. Right? Yeah, I can I can say hey. For example, uh, Joe Joe Casey who, uh, from Man of Action is doing a book for us called The Winter National, mm-hmm. uh, which is like uh, it's a it's a wonderful pulp spy story uh, about w- 
with, with some science fiction elements mixed in. Uh, and I, I was able to line up a piece to go up on uh, the Hollywood Reporter's Heat Vision today. Mm-hmm. And, and I was able to tell the reporter, hey, uh, you can, you can, here's a link to our app and you can say that it's available right now. Uh, and that's not something that comics can do at the moment. Yeah, you can't, you can't put up a put up a really high profile piece and say, "Hey, it's out right now in a comic store," because that's a missed opportunity to convince retailers to order more of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, Comics Pro was just here in Portland last week, and uh, retailers are the lifeblood of the direct market. They're in many ways they're the life, they've been the lifeblood of the comics industry for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of respect for what retailers do, just because it's so difficult to operate a shop. In this in this climate, unless you're one of the bigger ones like Midtown Comics, uh, where you know they have enough enough capital and they sell enough stock that they're going to be around for a while, mm-hmm. uh, the independent stores, I understand why why they get concerned and why they want to have a, a direct pipeline to publishers because they need to make sure that they're making the best decisions for their business. Yeah. Um, so it's just a very very weird system with the direct market, and the more you dig into it, the more. Uh, the more it, it gets even more confusing. I mean, you see massive numbers reported for stuff like Star Wars number one, Orphan Black number one, and when you really dig into it, it's because they got Loot Crate distribution. Yeah. Uh, and Loot Crate has so many subscribers. Yeah, it's so, so ridiculous. Many. It's like, it's, and so that number is always a fake number. Mm-hmm. It's not actually representative of how well a title does. It's, it's a PR opportunity for them and an opportunity for them to sort of explore, uh, sort of get get the word that they have a series out there. But if you look at the number two numbers for for any of those series, there's such a drop off for all of them. Oh yeah, yeah. Number one's definitely like with. I mean, even with. Um, I mean, my, the big the biggest example is you know Marvel and DC. Whenever they go through whatever restructuring that they're doing and they start renumbering things again. You know, it's always the number ones get, like, huge, like, hype or huge push or whatever. And then those numbers, like, just, they just plummet sometimes unless, you know, the the, the team behind it is really good um, and, and they're suitable and there's enough, you know, press about it. Uh, other than that, it's, it's uh, I can see why that they, they cancel books, you know, right and left because, like, the, the market's just so flooded at times. Well, and it's a temporary fix, too, mm-hmm. right? The number ones. And because at some point, that's not going to do it anymore. I mean, yeah. it's always, it's, it's even, you're even starting to see it now compared to a couple of years ago. Uh, if you go back and you look at the numbers, I believe this is correct, but number ones don't, uh, from, from image even, don't sell nearly as well as they used to. Oh, really? Um, yeah, if you, if you go in and you look at Diamond's numbers, and the number two drop off is just so much higher than it used to be. I mean, image number twos drop by at least 50%. Mm-hmm. If there's if there's not a, a critically, even if there's a critically acclaimed first, first issue, you're looking at about a 50% drop off on some of those titles. Wow. Um, and, and again, this is, this isn't hearsay. You can, these numbers are publicly available. Uh, if you go to comic book resources, they actually publish them every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can look at, at the different titles and see what the drop off is. I mean, when I was, when I was working with, with some, the direct market and working at Dark Horse, we would expect at least a 50% drop-off. And there was only one series while I worked there that didn't have that drop-off and everybody was amazed, and that was Lady Killer. Oh, yeah. Um, because Lady Killer is amazing and wonderful and, <laughs> uh, 
and Joel's art is completely ridiculous in every sense of the word in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that series was very much the exception, not the rule. And I think what that, the success of that book does prove is that it is possible to get new readers into comics, but only if the book is exceptional. Yeah. Um, and that book, I think, is is definitely one of the most exceptional titles to have been published in the last year. And you definitely have like your your lifers for uh, you know the um, the material for like superhero stuff. I mean, Marvel Absolutely. and yeah, Marvel and DC are always going to have those people who uh, are going to always buy their product, which makes it sometimes you know it makes it harder for other publishers because there's that loyalty thing to a brand that you're familiar with. That yeah, it goes through its lulls and everything, but you know, Batman's always going to be Batman, right? And so getting anyone to the, you maybe like maybe take a break from Batman for you know a month or two and focus on uh, something else like just go and, and and read another thing like sex criminals or something like that uh, it, it's it's always hard to get people to uh, sacrifice those dollars for something that they're unsure of and that you know that's the other thing I'm glad that you brought up pricing because pricing structures for comics are ridiculous oh yeah. It's insane. Like, you're paying $4 for 22 pages of story most mm-hmm. of the time. Four, $4 for 22 pages of story. Like, that's... I mean, you, you could pay... And, and, it, and a comic of 22 pages, I don't know how, how long it takes most people to read, but it takes me probably about, like, 10 minutes to read. Yeah. Probably. Generously, yeah. Uh, like, if you're looking at three ninety nine over over the course of 22 pages... You're paying about twenty cents a page, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which, when you break it down like that, doesn't seem doesn't seem like that much, but it adds up. Especially if you're buying like two, three, four titles a month. If you buy if you buy ten books a month, if you buy ten books a month, that's forty dollars a month that you are spending on comics. Exactly, forty dollars for ten issues, where at ten minutes a piece, you're you're getting. A hundred minutes out of it, so that's that's what like an hour and forty minutes. Yep. Out of that, and and that's that's how that's like four movie tickets. Mm-hmm. That's that's three months of Netflix. Yep. Like that is an insane amount of money to spend on on something that you're essentially reading in ten minutes and then not going back to ever in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, just goes back to disposable content. I mean. Right. If if uh, unless you're one of those people who really likes to pour over every panel and you spend a great deal of time, which I mean, there definitely are people out there who do that. But like, uh, I stopped doing a lot of uh, just individual reviews because it was it was just going to cost too much. Yeah, yeah. And what and and you know, for for people that aren't in the industry that just want to pick up a comic, that's a terrible value. Mm-hmm. That is a terrible terrible price to jump into a medium that you're only iffy about. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with, with something like Stila, and I'm, I am going to continue talking about it because it is. No, of course. But, of course. <laughs> uh, but with something, something like Stila, we want to make sure that, that that $4.99, you get your money's worth. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, whether you're paying the $4.99 to support a creator or you're paying the $4.99 to really get your money's worth, we're, we're going to give it to you. Well, and, it, and it also goes back to even, like, if you're just buying a book, you get, you know, unless it's a series, like, you get the complete story for, like, six ninety nine for one of those, like, little, little penguin books or something like that. Absolutely. Whereas... Uh, you know, mass market, mass market paperbacks I are uh, anywhere from, like, seven ninety nine to nine ninety nine. Yeah. On the length. 
and that's like if if it's seven ninety nine, that's two comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, yeah. So you you basically are paying you know seven ninety nine for two parts of a story that could be an ongoing. I mean, you don't know sometimes. Uh, or you could pay that and get a full, complete, you know, classics novel or something like that. And at least you know there's an ending. Exactly, exactly. At least you know there's an ending. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you look at uh, you look at something like... Okay, so I'm, I, I looked it up. Have you ever read The Name of the Wind? Patrick Rothfuss's incredible fantasy book that started off a, a trilogy that is not yet finished. I, I, I haven't, but I've heard of it. I haven't okay. read it yet. This book, this book in mass market, it's been out for years, but mm-hmm. like the mass market paperback costs $9 MSRP. Mm. It's cheaper if you can get a discount, but $9 MSRP. So you're looking at two and a half comics. So that's uh, 22, 44, it's 55 pages mm-hmm. of comics. Uh, this book is 722 pages of text. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 722 pages of text yeah. for, for $9. And granted, like, there are other there are other factors to, to keep in mind that you're you're also paying for the art you're paying for the printing costs but like mm-hmm. at a certain point you have to draw the line somewhere yeah right and I think that digital if if that's what you want to do the prices aren't any better mm-hmm. the price I mean after a couple of weeks sure the prices drop but but you know shops will also drop the prices of their print comics uh, in many cases just so that they can sell through stock so. Because digital mostly has the same prices, at least on release day, mm-hmm. that regular comics have, what's what's the advantage that you're getting from buying from a service like Comixology? Uh, what's the advantage of those single issues? Is it that you don't have to store them? It's that is that is it that it's easier to read? Is it like what's the advantage there in terms of money spent? And the answer to me is is that there's not much of an advantage. Mm-hmm. Comparatively, at least not financially. The, in the in the long run, doing it through Comicsology is is about the equivalent, really. Right, and certainly you don't have to have as much storage space. And it, to me, to me, when I buy a book from Comicsology, I consider myself to be renting it, not owning it, like temporarily renting it and just being able to read it from my own personal library as long as Comicsology is in existence. Because mm-hmm. to be honest, if if, God forbid, something were ever to happen to Comixology and were to fold, which I don't think is very likely, but if something were to happen, even if they offered me, offered to give me PDFs of all the comics that I bought through Comixology, I probably still wouldn't take it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's it's probably true. You're like, well, I've already read it, so why do, why do I need to hold on to it? Right, and I know, I know that's not true for everybody. I might be the, the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. I don't think I am, but I, I might be the exception, not the rule. But with something like Stila where you're subscribing uh, for, for content that comes out every single weekday. You're guaranteed content every single weekday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you find something that you like, there are lots of other series out there that you can read while waiting week to week for the chapters because there's a new chapter for each running series every week. Yep. Um, and then once the series is wrapped, we rotate another series in. Uh, so it's, it's really important from from my end as just as a consumer for Stila, because when, when I was interviewing for the job, I told, told the higher ups that I thought this was a great idea. And even if I didn't get the job, I was going to download the app and I was going to check out what the, what it was that they were doing. Yeah. Um, so from a consumer standpoint, I know that that four ninety nine is 
getting me a lot of bang for my buck per month. I mean, I, I crunched the numbers for uh, for a panel at Wizard World Portland the other day, which is online. So if you know you want to watch it, you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, a regular comic costs three ninety nine a month. An anthology series, something like Dark Horse Presents or the Vertigo Quarterlies, you're looking at five ninety nine to seven ninety nine a month for mm-hmm. somewhere between fifty six pages and I think one hundred twenty okay. pages, depending on the the cost and the publication. A trade paperback, a traditional trade paperback that you get from somebody like Marvel or DC, usually about nineteen ninety nine, sometimes less. For uh, I think it was one hundred sixty pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stila is five ninety nine a month for a guaranteed one hundred sixty comic pages a month. Yeah. <laughs> when you break it down like that, it's so hard to not want to at least give it a try. No, it's, um, it's true. You know, especially just with the um, again goes back to the content that you guys are going to be putting out there too, or or and, and are putting out there right now. Uh, that stuff sounds exciting. And and with is, is it four or five ninety nine? It's four ninety nine. So it's five dollars out of your month. It is literally the cost of a cup of Starbucks coffee. Yes, that that is very true. As someone who lives in Seattle, yep. yes, <laughs> literally the cost of a cup of Starbucks coffee. So I, it's we we worked very hard to make sure that this is a deal that that favors everybody all around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we get a lot of subscribers. Uh, not only does Steela benefit, but also the industry large benefits because there are more people reading comics and more people that are likely to want to come into a comic book store and browse and try to find new things to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it benefits the creators because we we make sure to give them a really good deal, and if there are a lot of subscribers, they take part in the profit share of that. Uh, you know, it benefits uh, it benefits everybody on staff here at Steela. It benefits the industry. It benefit indi- it indirectly benefits the retailers. We just want to make sure that we're doing our part to help move the industry forward as much as possible. Well, you're doing the good work then, Steve. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so, Sam. That's that's the that's the ultimate hope, you know. And uh, and it's because of because of great people like you that are that are willing to you know have us on on podcasts and, and write about it that uh, that we've gotten the the great reaction that we've had so far. So thank you so much for for having me on. And, give me a chance to talk about it oh, of course no I, uh, I i love what this podcast can do in terms of just exposing however many people it can to just awesome things and awesome people so uh th- we're just helping each other out steve really <laughs> <laughs> uh so before we go because we're at uh, we're at a bit over an hour um what uh, so you talked about the books that you know have come out uh, are there ones that you're really excited about through Stila and also what are you excited just in general that you that you've been reading lately Uh I am very excited about a lot of the upcoming things that are are coming out on Stila Uh we just, like I said we just had the Winter National premiere today mm-hmm. Uh Afrina and the Glass Coffin by the incredibly talented Irene Co is currently running Uh and then we'll have a new series coming up in uh, like mid March, and then we'll have a new series come up after that, uh, April first. And mm-hmm. all of them, all of them look fantastic. They're all very uh, diverse in terms of story content and diverse in terms of the creators that are that are creating them. We have a lot of uh, a lot of different types of creators from all different backgrounds uh, telling incredible stories. So uh, really, really proud of that. And uh, in terms of what I'm reading for traditional comics, I still read a lot of traditional comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but probably my, my vote for my favorite at this point is Giant Days from John Allison. I think that guy is ridiculously talented. It's so I've been, good. It's so I've good. been following his work since he was a web car. He's been doing web comics for years. He was at the forefront of the web comics. Uh, he was like a pioneer in web comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been reading his stuff since then, and it's just so cool to see him get success in the mainstream comics market. Um, really, really love that book. Can't recommend it highly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Waid's Archie is always a really, really good read. Good stuff. Uh, super fun. And I am a big fan of Kelly Thompson's Gem and the Holograms. So sure. good, right? For sure. <laughs> uh, and as always, by uh, by some of my, my former uh, my former Dark Horse folks, uh, Harrow County by Colin Bunn, mm-hmm. really, really wonderful. Uh, and I'm also a big fan of Gail Simone's uh, Surviving Megalopolis, that right. I mentioned at the top of the program. Yes, the, the sequel to uh, Leaving Megalopolis. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And so there, uh, there are so many really great comics out there that it's tough to tough to read them every week, read them all every week. But uh, you know, always encourage people to go into their their retailers and and just pick something out that they think looks interesting. Uh, and definitely encourage people to check out Stila. Unfortunately, no Android build just yet. I promise we're working on it. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I, I have an Android, so I don't think I can get it yet. I promise we're working on it. I All right. I'm holding you to it now, Steve. Oh, oh by the end of the year. I oh, swear. Okay. All right. I swear. Just we saying. I have an Android build by the end of the year. I'll harass you on Twitter if it isn't. Please, please do. And if, if, you, if you are interested in what you've heard about Stila on the podcast and you want an Android build, please tweet at us. We're, uh, we're at Read Stila, R-E-A-D-S-T-E-L-A, mm-hmm. on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all the all the platforms, Tumblr. Uh, please send us a message and let us know that you want an Android build. Uh, you know, we, we we hear you. We just want to make sure that we're, we're putting out the best products that we can, whether it's uh, via apps or, or content. So, you know, definitely, definitely make yourselves heard. I, I'm on the Stila social account a lot. Uh, so just please, please contact us and let us know that you want an Android version. Sweet. Well, yeah, and I can't think of a better way to, to end this podcast on that because you're doing all the PR for yourself there, sir. <laughs> uh, uh, this is going to go out on Friday. So uh, is, there, is there a particular story that's coming out on Friday that you want to promote? Uh, pro- uh, nothing. I Just uh, Friday, if, if you're listening on Friday, the chapters that came out this week were uh, the, the Winter National on Monday. Uh, Tuesday we had a new chapter of Teach. Wednesday was a chapter of Afrina. Thursday was Rome West, and Friday today uh, was a new chapter of Out with a Bang. Awesome. So uh, you know you've got a lot of really great content throughout the week if you're just discovering it. Uh, and and yeah, definitely definitely check it out and let us know what you think. Sweet. Well, uh, thank you once again, Steve Sunu, for coming on the podcast. I always enjoy talking to you whenever uh, I run into you at a con. So it was great that you could come on. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, again, really, really flattered that you had me on, and happy that I, I could uh, I could finally do it. Like, yay! <laughs> and um, and uh, for everyone out there listening, uh, you can always follow me at darling underscore Sammy. Uh, go to maniacalgeek.com, where uh, I write articles occasionally and post this uh, podcast too, as well and as well as on iTunes. And uh, again, Steve, thank you, and uh, for those listening, good night, everybody.